Christy and I, I'm not on? I'm on now. Good. All right. We started our parenting journey in the late 70s, and for a variety of reasons that we probably don't need to go over right now, uh, you know, we were intent on kind of drilling God's Word into our young children, even though they had very little ability to understand much of anything. Okay? Some of you may have experienced some of those same things. And so we would read the Word and books to our kids and sing songs to them. Okay? Uh, and one of the songs that we sang went something like, The wise man built his house upon the rock. Okay? Remember that? All right? And then it went on, The foolish man built his house upon the sand. Okay? And I know you're going to want to continue on. It's catchy. All right? Then it ended with, And the rains came down and the floods came up. And the house on the sand went, right? Okay, how many of you know that song, all right? So you've already got today's passage memorized, you know? This is one of the most well-known passages in all of Scripture, primarily because of that song. And it has prevented lots of grist for sermons because of all the analogies that you can come up with. Uh, So much so that this passage suffers from the same treatment that the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 oftentimes gets. You've heard the phrase, you know, familiarity breeds contempt. Well, in this situation, familiarity brings really lack of understanding and application. You know, we know it so well, it just, it's just there. Uh, but do we really take it seriously? Do we really understand what Jesus was trying to tell us here? Or is this just a passage to provide words for a children's song? I think you know the answer to that. Now, when I uh, thought about pictures for this particular lesson, I immediately went to the one that Mike brought, uh, used about a year and a half ago for a study on the foundations of our faith. And that picture had a really well-built sandcastle in the foreground. And in the background, uh, high upon a solid rock cliff was this great big fortress of a house to show the contrast. But then when I thought about it, I realized that that picture doesn't exactly capture what this lesson is about. And so here are my pictures. Okay? There you go. Now, there's a picture of stability and security, right? Pretty nice place. Okay? Downside might be not a lot of access to the beach, to the fun, you know? Okay? But that's one. And how about this one? Not too shabby, right? You know, many would love to have a vacation or spend some extended time in a place like that. That's kind of the point of the message today. So let's think about the context here of this house upon a rock and house upon a sand passage. The general one, if we think about the Sermon on the Mount, is that Jesus has explained in detail those vital principles that every human being has to use in his or her life, culminating with the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. 
And then he goes on and warns us all that every human being has decisions to make, whether to go through the straight or the wide gate, to go down the narrow or the broad way, and whether to believe the true gospel or the false one. And his instruction gives us ideas about how to avoid the pitfalls and the temptations confronting every single one of us. And that problem is highlighted by the existence of false teachers and then just simply self-deception, as we've studied in the past. But then, in the passage just before the one we're going to go over today, Jesus responds to folks who, on the day of judgment, say to Jesus, we've done lots of great stuff in your name. In other words, as far as they could tell, they'd fulfilled all the requirements for admission to heaven. However, he says to them, I don't know you. Get away from me, you workers of wickedness. Now, think about this. We talked about this in Sunday school. On the day of judgment, when you find out where you're going to spend eternity, can you think of a bigger downer than that? That's the context that we're talking about in particular. And as we have discussed before, Jesus will not be talking to the folks out there who are clearly lost, who don't want anything to do with God. No, he's not even talking about the people who are just showing up in church for show, who are just kind of tolerating or playing church. No, he's talking to people who genuinely believe they are saved, but they're not. Because they have based their salvation on their good works, their enthusiasm, maybe their right beliefs. He's saying this to people who have been led astray by very, very persuasive yet false teachers and to the self-deceived. And if taken in context, if one really understands what Jesus is saying here, we could see that Jesus is really trying to make a great, great warning to us all. In fact, he uses, after the golden rule, at at least three pictures to help us understand. Of course, the first picture is, is of the false prophet to warn about deception through appearances because that that teacher, I mean, he is warm, he's friendly, he's smooth, uh, he's got hair. I mean, sorry, Mike, no offense. But, you know, he's everything that you would want in a, an example. But we've got to be more discriminating than that. We never assume that just because somebody looks like or talks like a Christian that he or she really is. Rather than going by appearances, we will know or judge them by their fruits. And the second picture, of course, is the one that Jesus draws of what we call the unconscious hypocrite the one who actually believes he is saved because of right belief or zeal or or his works. And that warning is about self-deception. When any of these people reach the judgment day, if they have not figured it out before then, they are shocked to find that they're not welcome guests at the wedding feast. They don't get in. And this last picture, that of two men and their houses, Jesus gives us one last warning. It's about the danger of seeking only the blessings of salvation and basing our assurance of salvation on apparent 
possession of those benefits. So, again, this message is directed at those within the church, not outsiders. And the warning is to make clear the difference between the truly saved and those who only think they are. So we're going to discuss today how difficult it is to make that that distinction and the signs or tests that we should not use for making that determination about ourselves or anyone else. In the children's song and by intuition, we naturally focus on the foundations, right? Because they provide obvious illustrations, the difference between rock and sand, the, you know, when the storms hit and the pelting of, and rushing of waters and howling winds and the consequences of choosing a foundation seem so obvious. And while we consider the contrast, the possibilities for lessons and analogies are just endless. But to focus first on the foundations in this passage would be a mistake. Rather, the first focus we must have is on the builders of those respective foundations. So we will get to the foundations later. And we really have a double analogy here. It's two men and two houses. So to understand this picture, we will look at the similarities first. The similarities between these two men is that one of them is that they have the same desire. They each want a house in which their family can live. And they want it to be pretty much in the same location. We know that because they're both subject to the same weather. And beyond that, Jesus really doesn't give us any other distinction. So we can assume that the houses are pretty much the same, same construction, same style. Therefore, on the surface, the two houses look pretty much the same, the difference being below the surface. So before we get to the differences, the thing we must remember is that the differences are not obvious. We may think we can easily tell the difference between a a child of God and one who is self-deceived, but it's really not all that easy. The main point here is the subtlety of this distinction. So the goal is not to cause us here today to look sideways at the people sitting next to us, but rather being sure of our own calling and election. And then, being sure of that, to wake up the deceived. So, and we've seen this subtlety before, remember? False prophet, so congenial and warm on the surface. Uh, And so we've got to use, as we said before, discrimination given only by the Holy Spirit. And he may deceive others, but he may be deceived himself just like the other people who are deceived because they're basing their salvation on belief in something that really isn't a firm foundation. So to understand this difference, we want to look at the character of the foolish man and why his house ends up like this. Uh, So you can imagine somebody thinking about building, but the foolish man is impatient. He's in a hurry. He cannot wait. He wants his house, and he wants it now. Now, you may be aware that at Lion Lab, we've been thinking about construction. And, and in that process, some, like yours truly, have come up with great ideas, we thought, only to find that the architects and the builders have told us, you know, that really isn't appropriate. It doesn't meet the code. It's too expensive. It's not structurally sound. 
okay? Um, it takes a great deal of expertise to build a structure that will stand. But the foolish man is not interested in such advice. He knows what he wants. He's not concerned about what others might think. He just wants to get a structure up and a roof over his head. Now, think about this. Have you ever heard of somebody or known somebody who went into an important venture with that kind of an attitude, like starting a business or getting married? Disastrous, isn't it? The foolish man simply does not look before he leaps. He'll, he's not going to consider what could go wrong, the possibilities, the contingencies. He builds his house from the sand when the sun is shining upon a pleasant river without studying the floodplains or the weather patterns or even thinking about the, the spring thaws upstream. So to carry this over to spiritual matters, you know, he's not interested in what the Bible says nor in church history and learning from mistakes of others. To him, making detailed plans and thinking about it, what could go wrong are unnecessary delays. You know, he, he might call himself a doer, not a thinker or a talker. He gets things done. Now, a little parenthetical here. Frankly, I appreciate doers because they tend to balance out those who kind of analyze and talk a lot. But the people who think ahead are there within the body to balance out the doers, okay? So it's the independent doer that is the dangerous one. He's the fool. The character of the wise man stands in contrast. His singular goal is to build a structure that will, that will last the test of time and nature. He's humble enough to admit that he doesn't know enough about building, so he consults with those that do. He makes plans with that council. He doesn't allow his feelings or his desires for a roof to hurry him up into putting something up without a sound foundation. So he digs deep, and he lays the foundation. And he takes seriously the Proverbs that says that wisdom is better than silver and gold, more precious than rubies. In short, he looks before he leaps. So it's vital that one consider the house before he builds. Because once it's built, it's too late. Now, if you've ever looked for a house to buy, I think the tendency is to look at the layout, okay? The curb appeal, you know? Uh, the visible parts of the house. You know, but I suspect if you talk to Mark Ediger, a professional home inspector, he might tell you that it might be more important to look at the less visible aspects of the house. That's usually where the more serious problems can be hidden. In fact, the most important part of the house is that part that is most unseen, foundation. Because if it is faulty, you're going to have big problems. And that's Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 3 when he says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid which is Christ Jesus. The foundation that Paul addresses here is Christ's sacrifice and his teachings of the basic principles on which to live one's life. And that guides us all in everything. Nothing is more important to the structure of a person, especially when history and experience tells us that tests will come. 
Each, of, each life will be buffeted by trials, just like the house will be hit by wind and water. So how do we tell the difference between one who's laid the foundation and another who has not? We're going to first focus on tests that we might be tempted to use, but really we should not. So for the balance of this message, we'll focus on things that will not help us see the difference between a true believer and a person who is deceived. Again, because we want to first make our own calling and election sure, but also as a warning not only to those who have doubts, who wish to be sure of their salvation, but those who are completely deceived in believing that they're saved. So when we focus on the wrong measure or test, uh, we can become even more deceived. One aspect you cannot use is location. As the two men both are often found in the same place, just these two men, just as these two men built near the water, we can see both the wise and the foolish, the saved and the unsaved, in church buildings where both sit and sing and listen and laugh at the same corny jokes. Of course, just because you're sitting in a church service does not make you a saved Christian, even if you become a member of the church. Now, one of the great advantages of our covenant membership process is that it helps in this very area of discernment. However, it's not a foolproof process, as we'll see in just a little bit. Membership does not cause one to be saved, although answering the questions that we ask may help in opening the eyes of the deceived. Not only do they show up at the same place, they have the same general desires. Other than those whose consciences are seared by unrepentant, repeated sin, most people do want to be forgiven. They want to believe that their sins are washed away. They want peace. They want happiness. Most people want comfort during the trials of life. And people are looking for answers to their problems and They're tired of repeatedly making bad decisions. So when they come to a church service, they hear answers that help guide them in sorting out those problems for which the world has really no answer. Churches where people talk about such things. In fact, the guidance they will hear is probably very helpful, maybe even perfectly appropriate for them, and will probably lead to a better life. Who wouldn't want those things, whether a true believer or a false convert? who attends a mainline or a Pentecostal or a conservative or a Bible church or a cult. A deceived believer seeks all those things just as much as a true believer. No doubt, all of us have met people who live exemplary lives, been involved with ministries or give sacrificially to good causes and attend a church. There's lots of people who live very moral lives who we would call basically good, caring folks aren't true believers. And while a changed lifestyle is evidence of a new birth, it does not cause new birth. Now, there's a, it's hard to read, I know, but I'll just tell you about this. It's a very interesting case study in, uh, about false belief in Acts 8 related to a guy named Simon who practiced magic in Samaria. Now, Simon, he developed quite a reputation for his work uh, to the point that uh, the people paid attention to all 
that he did, and they actually said about him, this man is the power of God that is called great. He was so effective in his craft for so long that he was able to bewitch and amaze people with his magic. But then along came an apostle named Philip, preaching about the kingdom of God, baptizing and doing signs and miracles, causing many to believe. And so Philip clearly upstages Simon. Then, in verse 13 of that passage, uh, Luke says a very curious thing. He says, even Simon himself believed. And he was baptized. And he continued to follow Philip. But then, Peter and John come to Samaria, and they're praying and they're laying on hands so that believers could receive the Holy Spirit. And Simon had apparently made quite a fortune with his magic, so he offered the apostle money to purchase this spiritual ability to impart the Holy Spirit to others. Peter's response was rather swift and sure. Your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Now, what do you do with that? Do we not believe that God can change the heart of anybody, even a sorcerer? Well, sure. The text says that Simon believed. Not only that, he apparently convinced the church leaders, maybe even Philip, that his belief was genuine, so they baptized him. Now, I haven't reviewed all the commentaries, but the ones I've looked at all interpret Simon's belief as disingenuous. That is, he obviously was attracted and believed in something that Philip and the apostles said or did, but not the basic gospel. Philip, or Simon, had a belief or faith, but it was the signs and wonders that he coveted and believed in because that's all he could see. You know, one way to illustrate this is some of you may have had this experience where you maybe hold a one-year-old on your lap and then you point out the window at a dog. And while you try to gain their attention by pointing at the, the big doggy with, your, with all your faculties there, and she may reach out and point as well. But what is she seeing? Probably the end of your finger. Okay, she's just mimicking you because she doesn't have the capacity to discern, to focus on, and see the big doggy outside. And Simon was just like that. He only had the ability to see, to believe in, and desire certain powers that he did not possess. And so it is with many people in church in our day. There are aspects of the Christian life that are very attractive. Friendship and fellowship, activities, 
serving others, joy, the possibility to lead, maybe even to teach, just to mention a few. And there's nothing wrong with people being attracted by those things. As the old camp song goes, they will know we are Christians by our love, right? However, if those are the benefits sought after, if those are the objects of belief for a seeker, you know, it, one possibility is that person will simply drift away when their expectations in those areas are not realized. But perhaps even worse, if they stay in the church, they could remain deceived by thinking that they're saved, and that's not the case at all. After all, the person said he believes. Everybody believed him and baptized him, made him a member of the church. Can you imagine the shock of that person hearing on the day of judgment, I never knew you. Depart from me. This is serious stuff. Then, as we studied in Sunday school, you should have been here, it was a great discussion, there's the primary benefit of being a Christian. That's the eternal benefit of going to heaven. Certainly. You've heard of people outside the church when asked the question, if you were to die today, what would happen? And they would say, well, you know, I always believe in God, you know, uh, so I'm pretty sure I'm going to be there. Okay? Good practical point here. If you're meeting somebody who claims to be a Christian or wants you to believe that they're a Christian and they just talk about God, that's a sign. Okay? They're not mentioning Jesus they're not even getting close. And even if they do mention Jesus, they may not be there. But you've heard that, I'm sure, from people. And if those outside the church believe such things, how much more would a nominal Christian inside the church, surrounded by affirmation, believe that? The reality is that the gospel, the reality of the gospel is that wishing to go to heaven does not save a person. Believing in God is insufficient as well, according to Jesus. Remember, the devils also believed, but they were still devils. So, to kind of start to wrap this up, there are several similarities between the saved and the self-deceived. They, they do the same things. They desire the same things. They believe most of the same things. They even have the same things. The bigger problem is that the false believer believes he is saved. This is exactly the problem Jesus revealed when he, when he shocked many, when he will shock many on the day of judgment. Jesus warns this large group of people, really, they had no doubt about their status. They will believe they are forgiven. They will have enjoyed the benefits of their religion. They seem to have spiritual power. They will have led better lives. They certainly want to go to heaven. They can even have a peace about their salvation. However, it's quite possible to have a false peace. You know, if, if one says that, you know, really hasn't thought a lot about his own sins, that might be a red flag. Anyone who does not recognize their sinful state, who is not driven to the cross for forgiveness on a regular basis, may have a peace, but it's a false one. Satan will do anything to deceive you and me. He may even allow us to cast out demons and do many wonderful works and say it's in the name of Jesus. 
if that's what it takes to keep us blinded from the fact that relying upon those things is a, is a false peace. And that's exactly what Jesus said he will say to the horror of many on that day of judgment. And if you're not convinced by that, just remember this. No one except Jesus could tell the difference between all the other disciples and Judas Iscariot. The main point here is that there are many visible similarities between the two men and their houses. Likewise, we will not see much difference on the surface between the deceived nominal Christian and the true believer. Yet, there is a difference that can be discerned. We've already talked about how to recognize the foolish man, his hurried lack of concern for how he builds without concern for the future, warnings, plans, advice, contingencies. Most importantly in our context, the basis of his salvation, the very foundation of his faith. Again, the first step for all of us is to examine ourselves in light of those facts and tests to discern exactly where each of us is individually. So on your sheet, there's some questions you can ask yourself. Am I primarily interested in the benefits and blessings of the Christian life and salvation? Or is it my objective to be more and more like Jesus? Do I really hunger and thirst for his righteousness? And am I trusting solely on his death, his sacrifice on the cross, to satisfy God's perfect justice requiring payment for my sin through God's perfect love? Father in heaven, we give all Praise and glory to you. Yes, this is a confusing area. And yes, we need to be first concerned about ourselves. Examine ourselves and make sure that we are depending only on your sacrifice. The sacrifice of your son to pay the price for our sins. Lord, help us to get that down. Help us to be solidly assured of that and then know that we are your children destined for your kingdom. Lord, help us to discern when others are deceived that we might help them take the blinders off and to see you, to see the cross and see their desperate need for that work that was done for each one of us. Lord, give us the truth and help us to express it in love. We ask all these things in the precious and holy name of your Son and our Savior. Amen.